You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Good morning. It's good to see all of you uh, here today. Lots of uh, new faces, lots of folks here today. And just, I promised last week uh, that we would not run out of juice. And we are not going to run out of juice today, man. We have, we, have, we have the trays, we have cups, I have an extra Welch's in the back, like we are ready to go for today. You could have seconds uh, today during Holy Communion. Uh, so don't leave without Jesus today, my friends. So, and we're talking about Jesus today. Uh, the 2023 and me, what is our shared DNA as followers of Christ? Uh, last week we talked about who is God. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, I'll be bringing you up to speed throughout the, the sermon today. Uh, but I, I was talking about how I was on the beach with my dad last week, and I asked him, my dad who is a chemist, but also a believer, how do you know God exists? And he said, uh, as he looked out in the water, he goes, do you see the birds flying right above the surface of the water? I know that there's a school of fish under the surface of the water because of the birds. I don't have to see what's under the surface to know what's there. If you can't see what's under the surface, then look to the birds. Look to the birds. Interestingly, uh, at the beginning of Jesus's story, Jesus is under the surface of the water. He's being baptized by John in the Jordan River. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove you can't see what's under the surface, then look to the birds. The birds will show us. When you can't see what's under the surface, look to the birds. When there is truth you can't see, then look to what you can see. Think of it this way, when, it, when a child is first learning um, math, uh, you can ask the child, okay, you have two apples, and uh, I take one away, how many apples do you have left? Now, you might get to the answer of, I have one apple, uh, but if they're not holding an apple, you might get answers like, I like green apples. Well, that, that's, that's good. Or, why are you taking an apple from me? Right? Or, my brother prefers bananas. Like, you might get a lot of answers to that question. If you want to get to the answer, you hand the child two apples, and then you take one away, and you say, how many apples do you have left? And they can see in their hand, I have one apple. When we talk about, last week we talked about the theory of God, right? God is creative and good and collaborative and mighty. It's one thing to say these things. It's another thing to show them. And Jesus is God made flesh. Jesus is the apple in that equation so that you can see who God is. God is creative, God is good, God is collaborative and mighty, and all of that is beautifully true. Jesus goes by a lot of names, uh, the Lamb of God, as uh, it is said in John's Gospel, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But maybe today Jesus is the apple, showing us tangibly what the love of God is. Last week I mentioned, uh, with our relationship with God, it's, it's kind of like this two-step process of building a God box, or we have this idea of God, uh, and in, into this box that we build, we put our ideas and our assumptions and our knowledge of Vacation Bible School, and we put all of these things, and God fits nicely in this tidy box that we carry around with us. But eventually, as we grow and mature and learn more and join Disciple Bible Study, which is Sunday nights from 4 to 6, or Wednesday nights uh, beginning at 6, 
we realize that our box just doesn't work anymore. And we have to dismantle that box and build a bigger one because God is bigger than we thought. God is more gracious than we thought. And with our interactions of love of God and love of neighbor, that box just doesn't work. So we build another box and we put God into that box and we feel satisfied. And then as we continue to grow and change and mature and study, we realize that box didn't work either. So we tear down that box and and build another box and then put God into that box. And it's not a two-step process. It might feel like that, but it's a three-step process because eventually you realize there is no box. You don't need a box. There is no box you can craft that will exhaust the nature of God. When we think of Jesus, in a way, Jesus is that container of God that walks with us. In other words, it's not that we put God in a box and carry this box with us. As Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. We don't have to carry God around. God is God is with us. And God is always with us. So who is this Jesus that leads us into the understanding that we don't have to carry God in a box. Well, well, it depends on which lens you use. Just like last week, we talked about uh, the, the, the difference between the Hubble telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope and how they show us different things, but both images are true. It just uses different lenses, so we see different things. When we talk about Jesus, it depends, the way we answer that question, who is Jesus, depends on the kind of lens that we want to use. I wish I wish that that question was easy to answer. There's one answer. This is a snapshot of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. But the church even has gifted us four different gospels from which to begin answering that question. Now, there was a theologian named uh, Tatian uh, who tried to synthesize all four gospels into one story to make it easy for us. But the church said no. And the church rejected that. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. All of those gospels offer us different angles and different flavors to come to a picture of who Jesus is. If you want to learn more, we're going to like go through this very quickly. Uh, on Sunday afternoons, we have a class called Jesus and the Gospels, where we have been spending several weeks in like up to 30 weeks or something like that, where we talk, we compare and we contrast and we look at Jesus and the Gospels and what it means and what each flavor offers to us. But for today, we're not going to do all 30 weeks today, but for this morning, what's really helpful is to look at the first line of each gospel. Because that first line of each gospel gives us a flavor of what is to follow. So we have four gospels. Each one offers us a different picture. When you turn to the New Testament, you'll first see Matthew, and then Mark, and then Luke, and then John. But we're going to start with Mark. Mark is actually the oldest gospel. We're going to start with Mark. Here's the first verse uh, of the gospel of Mark. It says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Are there any English teachers in the in the, in the crowd today? What is missing? Yeah, there's one. What is the one brave one? <laughs> Everyone's like, uh, Briley Smith's like, I'm not, I don't, Matt has tricked me before. I'm not going to raise my hand. Um, yeah, what's, can you put that back up on the screen? What is, what is missing? What article of, of language is missing from that sentence? There's no verb. <laughs> yes, the first verse of the Gospel of Mark, there's no verb. It doesn't say this is the beginning of the, it says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. This verse tells us a lot about the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on the move, so much so that they forgot to put a verb in the first verse. Jesus is the verb 
of the gospel. It moved so quickly that they wrote it down as if there wasn't time enough to add a verb to that verse. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's, it's incomplete. And it's also incomplete because later in the Gospel of Mark, one of the big things in the Gospel of Mark, it's called the Messianic Secret. Jesus would heal people and say, don't say anything about it. Don't tell anyone that I healed you. There's the secret. There's a secret. Even the first verse is incomplete because the story is incomplete until the end where there's the big reveal that I am the son of God. In, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is rather mysterious, but he's also powerful. There's no backstory. It doesn't say where Jesus came from. He just appears. And here we have, uh, the, it says good news uh, on the verse. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Understand that in the ancient world, good news only came from Rome. Good news only came from Caesar's desk. Caesar's from where we get good news. Caesar is the Son of God. So in this first incomplete, hastily written verse, we have this very politically charged, captivating language. This is the good news of Jesus, Son of God. It's quite scandalous the way that this gospel begins. In Mark, Jesus is on the move. Jesus is rather impatient, and he also works in secret. But then we back up to Matthew, which was written a little bit later. Mark was written around the year 70 or so, and and, and Matthew was written uh, several years later, probably about 10 years later, something like that. Uh, Matthew's gospel offers a different picture. It begins with this, uh, Matthew's gospel, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Mark, Jesus appears out of nowhere, no backstory at all. Matthew wants to make sure that Jesus is rooted in a real time and a real place. And it might seem to be a boring read uh, to begin with uh, uh, the scrolling genealogy, but Matthew wants to make sure that you can trace Jesus. Jesus is born in a real time and a real place. It's the first time that we have a backstory of where Jesus Jesus came from. Now, the, the birth narrative in Matthew is not the one that we typically remember and hold in our They don't go to Bethlehem. They're already there. Uh, Gabriel doesn't talk to Mary. God comes to Joseph in a dream. So it's a little bit different uh, in Matthew's gospel. But Matthew wants you to know that he is from the line of David. He is a Davidic king, but also in the vein of Abraham's son, Isaac, and the near sacrifice of Isaac. The near sacrifice of Isaac. So this is fun. Uh, I forget which which one uh, of of my knuckleheads... uh, we were, we were talking over lunch one day, uh, and they mentioned, you know, today we learned about Isaac's sacrifice, uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And I said, oh, Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. And they said, what? I said, yeah. No, no, Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac. And apparently they had gone to the bathroom right at the end of the lesson. So, like, be very careful when you choose to leave that, you know, it's like when you're in the movie theater. Be very careful when you choose to leave to go to the restroom. You might miss the near sacrifice of Isaac. That was a learning experience over uh, nachos one day that Isaac wasn't sacrificed. It was the near sacrifice of Isaac. But Matthew wants to recall that. Matthew wants to picture that. Jesus is son of David. He's a king and has authority, but also son of Abraham, who is Isaac. The near sacrifice on uh, Mount Moriah. So in Matthew's gospel, also, Jesus is not 
this mysterious healer in secret, Jesus is the great teacher and the great rabbi, and Jesus looks a lot like Moses, teaching from the mountaintop. Matthew is divided into five sections, just like the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He's supposed to look very Jewish and very authoritative. In Matthew's gospel, by the end, Jesus is the judge of all nations and calls for the disciples to baptize the entire world in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we turn the page to Luke. Luke, again, gives us a different picture of who this Jesus is. Luke brings it back, that Luke turns it down a notch, so to speak, because Matthew is big and Jesus is in charge and on the top of the mountain. This is how Luke begins his gospel. Uh, that'll be on the screens as well. It says, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events, and I'll stop right there. Like, how do you suppose Matthew feels about this? Like, Luke begins by saying, I'm going to write an orderly account. And you know, Matthew's like, you chump? Like, I, I just wrote one. So you're going to write an, I don't, I don't know what Greek is for you chump, but I imagine that, or you're going to write an orderly account. Okay, Luke, continue. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Luke is writing to Theophilus. Now, Theophilus isn't a person. Theophilus is a title. Theophilus means lover of God. So just as Matthew's gospel is bigger than life, Luke brings it down. He goes, I'm writing this to Theophilus. I'm writing this to the one who loves God. I'm writing this to you. Luke is not so much concerned with the baptism of the nations as Luke is concerned with the baptism of you. I'm writing this to the lover of God. <clears throat> and he's writing to a Gentile audience who is less familiar uh, with Judaism Therefore, Jesus is very concerned, and his heart is with the outsiders and the outcasts. Those are the ones to whom Jesus goes in Luke's gospel. For example, at the end of the gospel, all of the gospels record that Jesus was crucified with two others. Some of the gospels say that those two others were criminals, but it is only in Luke's gospel where we hear one of the criminals speaking to Jesus. And that criminal says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? There's no time for baptism. There was no time to tithe. There's no time to register your attendance using the QR code that's on the back of the pew, which I hope you do today. Jesus says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The Jesus in Luke's gospel, Jesus is hardest with the outsider. Those whom society deems as unimportant. The prodigal son, the story of the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son is only in Luke's gospel. The one who ran away, who told his dad to drop dead, who came home and was welcomed and they were, there was a feast, there was a party. That is in the gospel of Luke. And that is what Luke is trying to portray about this Jesus, our Messiah. There is a thread of redemption for those whom society thinks unworthy. In Mark, we have a mysterious healer. Matthew, we have the great teacher. In Luke, we have the lover of outsiders. And then there is John. <laughs> John's gospel 
is completely different than the others. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called the synoptic gospels because they're kind of in sync with each other. Uh, cue your in sync jokes. They're all in sync uh, with each other. Okay. Um, John's gospel is very different. Things happen out of order. John isn't so much concerned about a biography in the same kind of way that the other gospels. John's gospel is attempting to answer who is this Jesus? And Jesus reveals himself through a collection of I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread from heaven. I am the good shepherd. And there's a fantastic book about that called Jesus Revealed. Uh, You can pick one up at our connection point by a fantastic author. If you want to dive more into uh, the I am statements of of John's gospel, you can do that on your way home. So we we have a mysterious healer, great teacher, lover of outsiders, and then the word of God. John's gospel begins with this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John supersedes all of them. Now in Luke, we have the, the, the Christmas story that we know, like the shepherds in the field and the angels appearing before them and going to Bethlehem because of the census. John says, oh, I can do you one better. Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus and God are one. Jesus is the word of God. So mysterious worker, mysterious miracle worker, great teacher, redeemer of outcasts, and the word of God. And then you turn the page to Paul's letters. All of Paul's letters were written before the gospels were written. Isn't Bible study fun? Because we have the gospels first, and then we have Paul's letters second, but Paul's letters came before the gospels were written, right? So in Paul's letters, we have this other picture of who Jesus is. And part of one of the the most ancient parts of Paul's letters, there was a hymn that was either sung or read in terms of liturgy. It's one of the most ancient liturgical practices that we have of the church, and it's in Philippians chapter 2. It's called the Christ hymn. So this is what Paul says. These are the basics of who Paul says Jesus is. Let's put that on the screen. This is Philippians chapter 2. It says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Two things. One, Jesus was in the form of God. Jesus is that apple in the hand that helps us understand something of the abstract. God is creative. God is good. Look to the birds. Look to Jesus. Look to this apple in the hand of who Jesus is. Jesus was in the form of God. Whatever the form of God is, and as clear as the church gets, uh, it's in the Nicene Creed, uh, the word is homoousion, and it just means same stuff. Jesus is made of the same stuff that God is made of. How beautifully ambiguous is that? That's as close and as specific as the church has gotten to explain what Jesus is made of. He is made of the homoousion of God, the same stuff of God, made in the same form. But immediately after it says that that Jesus was in the form of God, it says that, but it was not exploited. Jesus humbled himself and emptied the divine. 
and took the form of a slave. So there's this dance between creativity or being in the form of God and humility, which is exactly what we see in the creation account that we talked about last week. In the beginning was the uh, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep God creates but God doesn't create another God God doesn't create a buddy in heaven to hang out with God creates everything that isn't God God is creative and God is also humble all of God's creative activity was for everything that wasn't God and there's a parallel between who Jesus is and who God is obviously creative humble. Creativity and humility go hand in hand. And that's really what the dreaming tree is about uh, in the narthex, uh, in, in the lobby. Uh, yes, we, we could all live with shorter sermons. I understand that. But the dreaming tree is about how we might be creative, but also humble. How we can together be creative, not for the... We all want Asbury to be the best church ever on the planet, But if that is our only saying, if that is our only word to be the best church, then we aren't the best church because church is to point us to Jesus. Church is to be the lens through which we are connected to Christ. How can we be creative with the gifts and graces that we have given and also be humble by building a lens through which those who aren't yet here can see Jesus and experience Jesus. Humility and creativity going hand in hand. How are we being called to challenge what the world thinks is possible? Not for our benefit, but so that through Asbury, the world will know the love of God. More on that in the last week. I don't want to give away the punchline. Uh, more on that in the last week of our series of what our role as the body of Christ is. I'll put it to you like this. Several years ago, gosh, it was like um, early in ministry, uh, Isabel was like three years old and Annalie was like one. Uh, and we came, we came home and Isabel stole a toy from Annalie. And I immediately played the, the J card, the Jesus card. I said, Isabel, it is not nice to steal. We don't steal from our sister. Jesus wouldn't steal. And this sweet, innocent three-year-old looked me dead in the face and said, but daddy, I'm not Jesus. Touche. On the one hand, she's right. We aren't Jesus. And sometimes we live as if we are, right? Sometimes we live that in the world as if we are Jesus instead of being in need of Jesus. That's a very different way to live. (laughs) On the other hand, being a Christian means to be a little Christ. As Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me and through me. We are to reveal who Christ is through our actions, by not stealing toys from our sister, right? Daddy, I'm not Jesus. Yes, true, but maybe we should be. Maybe, since it's t-shirt Sunday, the line between us and Jesus is very blurred because Jesus is so obvious in the way that we are living. Since you're here, and this is the most exciting part of the sermon, um, is we're going to take a look at, last week we looked at the articles of religion. We looked at the first one, which is about God. The second and third articles of religion in the United Methodist Church and in the Global Methodist Church, we share the same articles, uh, is about Jesus. Now, I'm going to pick on the English teachers again. Um, 
Dear English teachers, I want you to find the period of this sentence. Now, <laughs> it, it is a very, well, I'll just let it speak for itself. Okay, so let's take a deep breath, and we're going to look at uh, the, the first article of religion, and the, or the second article of religion, and then the article right after that. This is the official United Methodist stance of who Jesus is. Uh, here we go. The Son, who is the Word of the Father, the very and eternal God of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried, to reconcile his Father to us, and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for the actual sins of men. Christ did truly rise again from the dead and took again his body with uh, all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven and there sitteth until he return to judge all men at the last day. <sighs> it's a big sentence. That's like a Faulkner-esque kind of a sentence. Yeah, it's just kind of, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. Now, Theology is important. It's super important, right? But may, may, maybe, may, maybe we can we can brush things up a bit. And I'm not talking about the theology. I'm not talking about the truth of the statement. Um, wherewith? I can't remember the last time I used the word wherewith. Um, um, you know, a joint together, Godhead, manhood, whereof one is Christ. Like we we might every once once every two hundred years we might want to look at these and kind of not change the truth of them but maybe brush up the language just a little bit. And I mean this by, by, by saying this. I am fascinated when Jesus called the first disciples. He was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he called out to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew in a sailboat. I have no idea why Andrew didn't make the cut for the Vacation Bible School song, but Peter, James, and John in a sailboat. He called out to them and said, drop your nets and follow me. And they did. And I can almost guarantee you when Jesus introduced himself, he didn't say that that I'm, I'm the Godhead and I'm the fully man whereof, whether to thusly sitteth. There was a connection. There was a charisma. Yes, theology is important. It's called job security, friends. Theology is very important because theology shapes the way we think and the way we think shapes the way we do. Theology is crucial. But later in the gospel, Jesus says, okay, who, who, who do they say that I am? Again, no one recited the article of religion, but they said things like, uh, some are saying that you're Elijah. Some are saying that you're a great prophet and a great teacher. So Jesus says, well, who, who do you say that I am? <laughs> and they say, and Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. And don't tell anyone. Later in the gospel, what happens is that when people meet Jesus, they realize that Jesus knows everything about them. Come and see the one that knows me and has known me when my mother put me under the fig tree, as it says in John's gospel. This man knows everything about me and, and didn't run. He didn't scream. He didn't give me a rap sheet. Here's a man who knows me and still loves me. 
The Samaritan woman at the well is another example. Jesus knows everything about her and offers her living water. And she leaves converting her entire city. Yes, we could talk about the theology in the Nicene Creed of how Jesus and God are one and the same, of the same homoousion and of the same stuff, substance. But if you're walking along the Sea of Galilee and you're working with fishermen, meeting someone who knows everything about you and still loves you, now that will get fishermen to drop their nets. I know you and I still love you. And God is the same. Theology is important. And we could talk more about it. We could talk about imputed righteousness versus imparted righteousness. What does it mean for Jesus to die on the cross? We spent an entire six weeks of Lent talking about the different lenses and how to understand that or why the resurrected Lord still had wounds in his hands. Theology, theology is important. And don't misunderstand, but there's a difference between saying, how many apples do you have up here versus having one? How many apples do you have? Versus that's something that you hold on to. Jesus knows us and still loves us. And that was the pattern of his ministry. I'm still, and I will preach about this until I have no more air in my lungs, of just how fascinated I am that Jesus, Jesus has a kind of love that I hope to have one day. Let me say that out loud. Jesus has a kind of love that I hope to have one day. Jesus is last night with his disciples. He broke bread with Judas, the one he knew was going to betray him. And he broke bread with Peter, the one he knew was going to deny him. And he broke bread with Simon, who wanted to lead an insurrection against the government. He broke bread with Matthew, who was a slimy tax collector, who was skimming off the top. And this is the same Jesus who said, I am broken for you. That will get a fisherman's attention. I know you. I know everyone around this table. And I still love you. That should get our attention, or at least it get those fishermen's attention. If you can't see the fish, or if you don't know where the fish are, then look to the birds. Look to the apple in the hand. Look to the one, as it says in the message translation, Jesus is God moving into the neighborhood. So who is your neighbor? Do you know your neighbor? Do they, do they know that Jesus knows them and still loves them? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.